Welcome. I'm Brad Hirschfield, here with Eladna Arai, and this is Cracking the Echo Chamber, because there is always more to the story, and because the cracks are not only where the light gets in, it's where it shines out into the world. Wisdom, after all, is a two-way street, and this is where we pave that road. We're joined today by Katherine Robison. She, I am so excited that you're here. I have to say, I can't get to the bio without saying that. Uh, Catherine is currently a PhD student and graduate teaching assistant at the University of Alabama in political science, specializing in the fields of American politics and international relations, with an outside minor in communication, which means she studies the stuff that people fight about most and how they talk about <laughs> what they fight about most, which is why you are perfect for cracking the echo chamber. Uh, her research interests specifically are in space policy and communication, both political and scientific. She previously researched the relationship of American Christian fundamentalists and the United States classroom, largely in relation to the teaching of evolution and in the public school system. And we're definitely going to talk more about that. And you also have, Kat, one new piece of news on that professional bio, which is? Yes. So in July, I started a new position as the program coordinator for the University of Alabama's Tied Together Mentoring Program. The program is for first-generation PhD students uh, and master's students, if it's a terminal degree or they're continuing on to a doctoral degree, as well as for doctoral and master's students who are in women and minorities in STEM fields. Wow, that's amazing. Now, by first-generation, forgive my ignorance, that means that you are the first person in a family to have earned that level of degree? Uh, first generation in this sense means the first person to attend college. So not oh, just wow. not just a, a post-bachelor degree, but uh, first person to attend college. And I'm actually a first generation student, which is how I originally got involved in the Tied Together program as first a mentee, and now I'm a paramentor, and I'm now graduating up to program coordinator. Wow, that's amazing. That's like the old show. You know, I'm not only a customer, I, I didn't create the product, <laughs> I'm a customer, but no, that's really beautiful. This is kind of the ultimate give back, it sounds like. Yeah, mentoring is something that I'm incredibly passionate about, and this is an opportunity to meld my passion in a professional context. Wow. Why is mentoring so important to you personally? And then I'd like you to talk for a minute, even though I know it has nothing to do and yet everything to do with what we're going to talk about today. Why do you think mentoring is so important in general? But first, for you personally. I wouldn't be where I am today without mentors in my life. Uh, I got my GED at 16, actually. So I'm a high school dropout wow. who is now uh, just a couple a of years away. <laughs> yeah, just a couple <laughs> years away. And I have had and benefited from mentors throughout throughout my life, but specifically within my college career and at at my master's, I did my master's at Youngstown State University in Ohio, and uh, in particular, there were two professors there, Dr. Martha Planty and Dr. Donna DeBlasio, who adopted me into their program. I was in a different program and just became incredible professional and personal mentors and got me into three different funded PhD programs, and so I got to choose where I went and have just been excellent examples of what it means to rise to the top of your profession and give back. Wow. That's, I think you just defined what great mentorship is. If I was to give it back to you, it has to do with creating options and access, mm -hmm. contributing your own personal expertise to the person you're mentoring. And you use the phrase, they adopted me in, that great mentoring at some level is an act of love, just as much as adoption is. It may not be romantic love. It may not be 
familial love in the classical sense, but it is an act of love, just like adoption is an act of making family, even though it's not in the biological path. So I think that's what you're describing. And this is one of those moments I wish this was a visual medium because I'm also looking at your face. (laughs) And so I know that you don't just think it, you feel it. So go from that personal experience for a minute to why you think mentoring is so important generally, because clearly you've benefited from it, but a lot of people benefit from things, but don't think deeply about what they mean in general for others. And I know you do. So can you talk a little bit about that? I'm happy to. I think of mentoring first. There's this really great video. So if you haven't seen it, you must watch Randy Pausch. He gives his last lecture. He was a researcher at MIT and he passed away from pancreatic cancer. And he talks about you know, well, this is really my last lecture, and we have lots of last lecture series. And at the end of it, he says, this has really been about, and my my career has been about making other people's dreams come true. And mentoring is important professionally because no one can do it alone. And for me, I particularly think of it professionally in the context of underrepresented people in professional fields. Women and people of color are underrepresented in most academic and business fields. Mm -hmm. And in order for them to succeed, they need someone who is there to encourage them. And so professionally, mentoring is important because people, especially people who may be underprivileged or don't have the skills, need someone to both encourage and also impart these skills and also to recognize that, yes, you should apply for something. Because one thing we know from research, especially when it comes to to women and other underrepresented populations, is that a man will apply for anything, even if he's only marginally (laughs) (laughs) qualified. In fact, my my mentee this year, her name is Natalie Lima. She's an excellent poet. She's in the MFA program at Alabama. By the way, you're a poet also. At some point in this conversation, (laughs) we're going to get some of your poetry. Because having read it, I think there are It sounds obvious because, of course, there are. There are some really profound and quite beautiful linkages between the poetry you produce and the way you're talking right now. But (laughs) we'll hold that for later. So Natalie, for her New Year's resolution this year, she posted that she is going to apply to everything with the confidence of a mediocre white man. And not <laughs> not to pick a on hostile. Not to pick on that because I think I, I, I teach and one thing that I constantly tell my students, I teach in a southern university, that privilege is something that everyone has and everyone has disadvantage. So we shouldn't think of it in terms of like guilt or shame or I'm doing these wrong things. But people need mentoring, no matter if they're a confident person with every advantage coming from Ivy League school or if they're coming from just your local state school. And what mentoring does professionally is it helps build the capacity of of students and workers to reach for more things and then also to be able to give back what they've been given. So I think this is so important. You just put two big points on the scoreboard for the cracking the echo chamber side of things. (laughs) And it's really... and, and. I couldn't have expected either one of these to happen, but the first was when you simultaneously kind of made fun of mediocre white men and then said, but of course, everyone has privilege. In my experience, the people who use privilege as a concept the most are angry at those, quote, mediocre white men Mm -hmm. and don't believe they also have privilege. Or they say there's no such thing as privilege. Everyone has it the same. It's really all basically equal. And I think most of us, if we could just calm down for a moment, no, neither of those is true. Mm -hmm. There is privilege. 
what if one of the great tasks in life is not to necessarily be so angry at the privilege other people have, but to ask what privilege you have by virtue of being you. Mm -hmm. And that just seems like such an interesting way to admit the privilege is real and it does make a difference in people's lives. But what if we need to begin scoring privilege in multiple ways and trusting that we all bring things to the party of life that people haven't always told us we bring? And if that's what you're describing. So that's one. And the other piece is that you said, you know, I do this mentoring because no one can accomplish great stuff alone. No. Right? And I think there's whole swaths of the culture that take that for granted. If you can go back in time a couple of years, then-President Obama got in a lot of trouble when he actually told America, well, you built a business, you didn't do that alone. And people went crazy because, of course, the competing narrative there, and I really do think it's a part of a healthy American narrative, is pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, yeah, I really do believe that that's true. But someone had to make the boots. Right? <laughs> In other words, they're both true. You, there is a, And I would imagine your life, when you talk about dropping out of school and getting a GED at 16, there was a lot of bootstrapping and a lot of helping. Yeah. And that it's not you did it alone or you only did it because other people gave it to you. But that like most great things, it's a combination of working really hard and feeling ultimately personally responsible and then the wisdom and the love and the expertise and the nurturing and the help of all the people who come into our lives. I couldn't have said it better. So I'm really, that's, you know, we, we, we're not going to a lot, don't worry, but we could stop here and <laughs> if actually imagine a country, because you do policy work on the political science side, mm -hmm. what would an America look like that knew how to really own that no one gets anything done alone alone? And that part of the greatness of this country's story is that model of we can do it. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And that instead of being polarized, some people will be 51, 49 one way. Others will be 49. Heck, I don't care. They can be 90, 10 in each direction. But that we actually need both of those. We need that, you know, that old model of the cowboy riding alone on the west and the prairie, taming the new world. And then also realizing, actually... You know, same way someone had to make the boots you pulled on, someone had to make the horseshoe. Yeah. And someone had to like, right, so we're never in it alone, yet we have to feel responsible. So for that alone, I'm really, really glad that you are here. I am also glad you're here, and the timing is perfect, because you have done some serious work in thinking about the relationship of religion to science and to public policy, and especially to, religious, uh, to educational policy in our public schools. And because it is May... <laughs> it is the beginning of litigation season, and it is the beginning of legislation season, because if you don't start to pass laws in May, how will you control what goes on in the classroom in September? And so here we are, mid-May, and there are already, I think by my count, 17 different major cases or bills pending right now that are trying to change the nature of science education around the country. So we could focus on any of them, but two of them are bills that are going through uh, the process in the House in Florida. And they're going through this House and one through the Senate, actually. And the goal is to give anyone, and I want to ask what you think about this, not just parents, the ability to question teaching materials in a school and be guaranteed a public hearing with a, quote, unbiased and qualified hearing officer. 
And the bills are framed in a way to give communities power and to give individuals voice, which in general, I would say, I think is a great thing. My problem is, and you can tell me if you think, hey, it is a great thing or if my problem is legitimate, that almost all of the people who bring these cases and certainly the sponsors of these bills are doing it because they want to claim that creationism and evolution are on an equal footing. Right. One of them actually charged that the purpose and the importance of this legislation is that history texts are conducting, quote, religious indoctrination by teaching children that we are descended from apes. <laughs> okay, the laughter means I'm shutting up now. <laughs> Have at it. <laughs> well, my first thought when I when I listen to these, and I'm not familiar with the particular bills, but that these are a waste of taxpayer time and money because there are Supreme Court cases that have already shot down the premise that creationism and evolution are on equal footing. And so I'm going to take a wild leap here and assume that the bills are sponsored by Republicans, uh, which I hate to do because it is very dangerous, in my opinion, to broadly paint either party with any brushstrokes. Uh, Interestingly, about, and I appreciate that, the people who are sponsoring them mostly align that way. But if you look, they tend to say it's not about a party. Mm-hmm. What they tend to share in common is a deep cultural conservatism in almost all the cases, not all, but like 90 plus percent. And this is where your expertise comes in, a rooting in evangelical Christianity. So it turns out the motivation behind this, which is why so much of this is about creationism and evolution and the claim of religious indoctrination, is that when science is put on any kind of equal footing, forget different equal footing with religion, it is seen as religious indoctrination, though not the way we would necessarily use it. Yes, yes. (laughs) And the reason I bring up the fact that these are put forward by typical people we think of being the religious right, right? This this movement that sort of uh, came up with Reagan, this idea of the silent majority and more evangelical activism in American politics is because the very point that they will not pass constitutional muster is a waste of something that this party tends to say, we don't want to waste taxpayer money, we don't want more government involvement, and yet this is something which is going to be... If, it, if they pass, it's going to be something that, that takes these things that party platforms say they do not want to do. The problem with these is, again, the Supreme Court has president, and typically the Supreme Court does not over, overturn president. Stare decisis is this right. legal term. You know, we don't have to get right. into that. It's We're very not going to have a whole about starry, yeah. but the point is, especially this court is not eager yeah, to the, make a new law. Exactly. So, but what this does is it sort of goes along with a thread that's happening now where Christians in America, especially evangelical Christians, feel that they are more persecuted than other religions, which is a very interesting framing that has occurred. And so these bills are happening in state legislatures, and a lot of them were actually written by groups like ALEC, and there's legislative groups that write these bills. So you see them crop up in similar uh, forms across the country. And they're creating these bills as a way to say, look, we need to protect religion, that we need to protect religious, you know, we need to protect our children from, from liberal elitist influence. And they see science as threatening to their religious, their 
Yeah, their they religious see, yes. faith. Yeah, they see so their science dogma, as, their doctrine, their positions. Exactly. They see science as, as something that's threatening. And what these bills say to me as both a person of faith and as an academic is that there is a problem with messaging. That what do you some, mean? Because science is not a threat to religion. And it is false to say that it is. Um, so often we forget that science, for, for most of science's history, was a pursuit of the religious. It was a pursuit of truth and a pursuit of, of closer communion with God. And so what has happened in the last century in this country is that religion and science have been bifurcated into separate separate zones, separate themes of life, separate areas of life. And as our scientific understanding has advanced, it has threatened our religious interpretation. And this creates a tension to where people are not comfortable with the questions that it brings up. And, and, and of course, this is my, I should preface this, that this is my opinion of what happens, is that there becomes, well, if my religious tradition is teaching that the earth was created in six days and that the earth is only several thousand years old, if there is a piece of scientific evidence that says, well, no, we know the earth is 4 billion years old, we can use different dating techniques, then that threatens my religion. And instead of saying, perhaps my interpretation is wrong, perhaps our understanding is wrong, there's a, a, a tendency to like dig in and say, no, this is an attack. And science is just talking about you know, the best estimate we can make with the information available. This is the best interpretation of the scientific evidence. And that means it can change every once in a while. As we, you know, Pluto was a great example of this. When New Horizons went to Pluto, our entire understanding of, of planetary geology on icy worlds changed. And it was exciting. Unfortunately, what has been happening in the evangelical community when our understanding of life on Earth has changed it scared them. And they're not like, this is exciting. They're like, this is threatening to our religious worldview. Because if this isn't true, what else isn't true? Good. So this, I want to dig into this a little bit because I think you've, you've hit on something that's very important. People don't typically open their minds when they feel under threat. Mm-hmm. In fact, and you're the scientist, not me, I think there's a lot of biological evidence and we're genuinely under threat. And the genuineness is I experience it as threat, whether it's real or not. Right? The only difference in my mind between perception and reality is that it's harder to change perception. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, that is just the way it is. Oh, I like that. I got a <laughs> snicker out of him. That's a good day for me. Um, you should feel free to jump in here at some point, by the way. So I think that Simply telling people, hey, this is no threat, isn't going to help. Even though I happen to have views that are much like yours, that ironically, the bifurcation of science from religion did a disservice to both by taking wonder out of science Mm -hmm. for too many people and by making people of faith feel under threat from religion as opposed to, my God, literally, (laughs) You could pursue a deeper understanding of the world. And when you said things like, oh, my God, if you're a person of faith, not that you have to be, you would actually have an experience that both your soul and your mind were fully engaged. And yet in the splitting, which I even understand was done for very good reasons, because the splitting of religion and science in part was a function of the splitting of religion and state. And since state-sponsored religion had a couple thousand years of pretty ugly run for most people, if they were in the minority, any minority, so I get it. (laughs) But we're going to have to come back and now address the fact that by disintegrating people, we made the faithful fearful. Mm. And that in their fear, 
they often end up lashing out. So what would you suggest? Because you've studied this phenomenon and this population. So we can deconstruct it, but it's not going to make things better because the longer, as you said, people feel afraid, the more you know, harshly they're going to dig in and telling them, well, you don't need to. That's like telling someone to calm down. It just doesn't work. It's not going to help. So I'm curious, based on the analysis that you've given and the picture you've drawn, assuming we would like to do better than simply shrilly screaming at each other about this, what might be a way to open this conversation rather than litigate it to death? I think conversation is the key. You have to be able and be willing to speak with each other. You cannot throw facts at anyone and change their mind. However, you can build relationships. So it's about getting people of faith together with scientists and talking about, well, why do you believe this? Why do you feel this way? Why does it threaten you? What is it about this that makes you feel as if you need to dig in or how is it that as a scientist, I'm not communicating clearly enough or I'm communicating in a way that makes your religion feel threatened? Because I'm not speaking about your religion. I'm not making a religious or a moral judgment. I'm talking about a natural phenomenon within the earth or within the universe. So it's about creating conversations. And it's not just between science and religion. This is the problem we have right now within our politics. We're no longer speaking with each other. We have turned compromise into a dirty word. Our founders, which we also love to bring up and talk about, (laughs) argued a lot with each other. I mean, the election of 1800, if you think this past election was anything, please please read a history book and and read about the election of 1800. It was very dirty. (laughs) And... But they fought with each other, and they had real disagreements, but they were able to come to, ta- to the table. They were able to have a conversation and focus on what was important and focus on making laws and making a constitution and drafting these documents that have, have withheld for over two centuries that are the lifeblood and DNA of what makes America great. And now we no longer like compromise, because if you reach across the aisle— you're excoriated by your own party, sometimes by the press. So it's the same thing with science and religion. Lots of scientists don't see a conflict. And sort of, I think a lot of people paint science as like, oh, science hates religion and religion hates science. And most people, they're not seeing them in conflict with each other. They're seeing science is applicable to this part of my life and religion is applicable to this part of my life. For some people, they overlap. For some, they don't. So it's about being willing to come to the table to have a conversation. So what do you say in that conversation? For me, it's always important to try and imagine myself as the person I'm not. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm going to now inhabit that person. And I come and say, you know, Kat, that's all very nice, and you're clearly extremely bright, and you've got a very gentle spirit, so I'm going to sit here and not try and beat on you too much. But here's my Bible. And my Bible in Genesis says, in six days the Lord God made the world. What am I to do? with the claim that science says it's not six days. And I am a young earth creationist, and proudly so. Mm -hmm. 
The best count I have is the world is somewhere between five and 6,000 years old because I count the generations in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, and I go from there into recorded history that's consciously as history, and that's it. That's the count. So by definition, as gently as you say it, your science is in conflict with my faith, isn't it? And this is where I have to come and say, there's two options here. One, we're never going to agree. And that's okay. It's okay to, to be in conflict on this. But what I would like to ask is what happens if the world wasn't created in six days? Does that change who God is? And if I say yes, because you know, and now this is a stretch because I'm mm-hmm. not Christian, but if I deny six days of creation... I may as well deny his risen son. And then what's the point? It's an excellent question. And what I would challenge you to do as an evangelical Christian expressing these beliefs is to look at the words in the scripture and to say, what does it actually say? And I'm going to push one last time because I get, I mean, I know if I'm torturing you. No, no, it's fine. I've looked. I don't see it that way. I am convinced I'm right. You were right the first time. We are going to disagree till the end of time on this. Do you have anything, though, that would make me less angry? You don't have to, we're not going to agree. (laughs) I've heard all your arguments. They're very nice. I don't accept them. But I'm tired of being angry because I think these are good people, and I don't think most people want to go through life angry. I'm tired of being angry. Do you have any way of talking to me about this? So we really could disagree, and even if I lose the case and my kid goes in and learns the theory of evolution, and we'll get back to that. (laughs) Sorry, I have to come out to myself occasionally. That I'm not going to sit at home raging at how you are corrupting them. What can you tell me? Because no matter what I tell you, God is still God. What do you mean by that? I mean that God is bigger than any disagreement that we have together. And... He is very clear on the power of forgiveness and compassion and care for your fellow person. And we may not disagree. We may disagree. We may not ever agree. But no matter what, God is still God. And we can rely on that. And the God that you and I believe in is not a God who is advocating for anger against their fellow human. Great. I uh, jump in a lot. Yeah, I just had a thought. I mean, one of the things that I find interesting about this discussion is like, I, I also feel though that there is a deep, as much as we, like I personally have the opinion that religion and science can coexist, but I do think that there's a deeply held philosophy among, like it's an actual philosophy, I think, among a lot of people in terms of their belief that they can't. Like what I mean to say is that this is an actual part of the structure of their Mm -hmm. religion. And I say this as someone who used to be more strictly on that side uh, as a religious person and who later kind of grew to the viewpoint that you have uh, in terms of their ability to coexist. And what I found fascinating about that place that I came from was that a lot of people made the argument that the science was flawed, Uh, kind of in the same way that 
I hear you saying that kind of their view of religion may be limited. Um, and I just, you know, part of the issue is like, I think what you said is so beautiful in terms of going to the place of God. But I also think what's hard is it seems to me like people are speaking different languages, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I, and I, th- I think, uh, so I don't, I don't know if I have a specific question, but I, what I found fascinating about the beginning when you were talking about how to, ha- like, that we should have conversations, what it actually sounded like you were saying was that we should listen. You know, you kept saying these questions mm-hmm. that you would ask them. And in my experience from sitting down and talking with friends, that seems to me to be the, maybe the only way that you can even have a conversation, you know, is just trying to understand where people are actually at. I agree. And I think listening is important because in these conversations, you know, an evangelical Christian who has been socialized to think that science is attacking their religion is going to be defensive. And one way in which you can deal with that is to be willing to listen to what they're saying, because they may have never been able to have a conversation with someone who doesn't think science is attacking their religion. And just hearing someone's concerns, you know, will then personalize science to them, will personalize the scientist. And that's why, to me, at the end of the day, convincing someone that the earth is four billion years old is not so important to me. However, being able to sit down and have a meaningful conversation with someone is important. Yeah, I think it's crucial. That's the one piece, by the way, of even these laws, which do make me nuts, I'm sympathetic to. They're rooted in people's desire to have a voice, mm-hmm. to be heard. And the two things I know is no one ever says they've been heard too much or loved too much. <laughs> and so I take it really, I mean, maybe you guys are the exception. You'll say, Brad, you're nuts. I've been heard plenty. I'm done. And I've had plenty of love. I don't need any more. But I don't know anyone who's ever said, no, no, I've actually been heard plenty. I'm done. No one needs to listen to me anymore ever again. Or I've had enough love. Let someone else have it. And so... That's the part that I'm really sympathetic to, and I think it's not about fighting the law. It's getting at what's motivating it and opening opportunities. I want people to be heard. I want people to be heard, even about things, frankly, I think are kind of batty, because I think there's a wisdom even to the battiness. I don't want them litigated in court if I can help it. I don't want a hearing officer deciding about it, because I think, Elad, you're right. These are two different languages. And they're only in competition because of a misunderstanding, which has nothing to do with one could be 100% true and 100% false. They could be 50-50. It just turns out there's ships passing in the night, I think, in so Mm -hmm. many ways. And that's a big piece of this, I think, is that the other thing I might say to that person is it's not that science is an attack on religion it actually proceeds with different premises from faith. And so let's assume for a minute everything they teach in that earth science class that your eighth grader is in is complete BS. It's totally bogus. <laughs> How do you know? Because I read Genesis, so that's stupid. It's, not, it's just not like that. Okay, maybe. But it wouldn't matter as much if you didn't think it was competing for the mind space and heart space that Genesis takes up. The premise is different. Science is happy to be wrong. Exactly. Faith, for many people, 
can't tolerate that. That's a whole separate show and a whole separate conversation. <laughs> I was about to get started no, on that. I know. Because I think for some of us, actually, faith's ability to be wrong and to be revisited is, is actually what defines it as faith and gives us a lot of energy. But I accept that for some people, it can't be. And the very notion that faith could be wrong means it's, it's corrupt, it's false. But it comes from a different place. So I wonder what you think about this idea when it comes to policy. And I, and I want to at some point move us to the space stuff because I'm really interested <laughs> in it. I've actually said that I have no problem with things like creationism being taught in school, but not in a science class. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't mind if kids are exposed to ideas that I don't share but the premise has to be the same. In the same way, I wouldn't teach art in a geometry class. Exactly. Because the definition of what an isosceles triangle is, is different when you're doing a geometric proof than when I take my kid into the arts, just make triangles. Mm-hmm. I, I don't care if they're triangles there or quadrangles, frankly. If they experience them as triangles and it's their artistic expression and they want to call it that, great. Well, it's a lack of humanities education in the United States. We have, to me, this is a symptom of that. So in moving towards a focus, and I say this as someone who is in science and loves science, but we have moved sort of this focus again with the bifurcation, the humanities and the liberal arts are away from the STEM fields. One of the most important contributions that education in the liberal arts and the humanities makes is the ability to critically think. We don't teach history. We don't really teach religious history in this country no. because we're very we're afraid so of afraid that. We're so afraid that it'll be that, corrupted as evang- is evangelizing the students. And I get it. Oftentimes it is, and I get in so much trouble when I go mm-hmm. to some places. They say you're opening a Pandora's box. I don't know that we have a choice in some level because I don't want to fight religion versus science in the science class. It's stupid. It's a different premise. Mm-hmm. And even though my faith is rooted in a story that's closer to the science class, so it's easier for me to say, I have no problem. Read that story where it belongs, which is not in science, because if I asked a person of faith, of this kind of faith, I should say, can Genesis, literal Genesis, be wrong? And the Bible still, can literal Genesis be inaccurate and the Bible still be true? And they would go, no, it's a stupid question. Great. That's why, in my mind, it can't be taught in a science class. Because in science, in fact, the more you can discover the things we used to think are inaccurate, the closer you're getting to the truth. Exactly. And so they just, they're just ships passing in the night. I don't feel like we never, we never say that. We never give people the space to be heard on what they do believe. So they end up fighting in the wrong place about things that mm-hmm. that's where they may not be in conflict whatever they look like to you is a matter of policy. So I want to ask you kind of this one thing, because this was at the heart. It's actually going on right now in Florida. This is one of the people who is pushing one of these laws that would put uh, religious theories of creation and evolution on a par with scientific theories. We're going to talk about what theory means of evolution. Uh, The science here is not proven on either side, the advocate said. There are lots of scientists on both sides of that equation, creationism versus the theory of evolution. They're both theories. And all we're asking for us is both sides of the discussion in a balanced way be put in front of the students. 
Now, it's pretty clear I think that's wrong. Yes. I own that. (laughs) But you're the expert, so talk to us about it. So a lot of this is an unfamiliarity, as you were saying, Elad, with the language. In science, theory does not mean a hypothesis. Theory does not mean an unproven, untested explanation. In science, theory means the accepted explanation based on all available evidence for the phenomena it's studying. Whereas in common language, theory means, oh, I just think this might happen, or I have, you know, I posit this might be it. And so that creates a lot of confusion when you tell someone, oh, well, the theory of evolution, they're like, well, it's just a theory, so I can disregard it. Whereas it's a lot more difficult to say, well, the accepted explanation based on all available evidence for the evolution of life on Earth, you know, is, is a lot harder to say than to say the theory of evolution. And, and it really comes to this idea that we do not have the appropriate language to cross between religion and science. So I think that's really powerful, especially because we said we're going to talk, how do people talk out of their bubbles? This is really an area of expertise for you. And you can stay in this field or in any area that's important to you because I think in so many cases we really don't have the language that would help us get beyond these barriers. It's not that they'll be, the, you know, the birds will chirp and we'll all agree at the end of the day. I don't expect that. I'm not even sure, frankly, I want that because I think the rubbing up against each other in disagreement is actually really generative and creates new ideas and new thinking, and I admit it, I like it. I just wish it wasn't so damn nasty. And I think so much of the nastiness is what you're describing. We don't have the language. So we call it the theory of evolution because there's a humility in the best of science. And I get it. There's plenty of arrogant science, just like there's plenty of arrogant faith. But the best of science, we call it the theory of evolution because in humility, while there's much evidence for it, I can't prove 100% that it's as real as my kicking a rock and my toe hurting. Mm-hmm. So I thank you, David Hume. So I, <laughs> I get that, but it may also be undermining us because it may have put evolution on a par with something which someone says, not only have I not proven it, there is no test for it. In fact, if there were a test for it, I would argue against the test because it's an act of faith. And now that's how the theory of evolution and the theory of creationism end up on a par. So how do we create new language in any of these fields so we can talk to people who aren't in our bubble, who aren't in our, forgive me, echo chamber? (laughs) Well, I think it's not so much even about creating new language. It's about telling our story in their language. If you exist within a bubble, whatever the bubble is, if it's academia or professionalism or religion, if you want to communicate with someone outside of that bubble, it is incumbent upon you to learn the language of the people with whom you want to converse. David Newman, who is the former uh, deputy administrator of NASA, also great researcher in spacesuit technology, she said last year I was in uh, Israel for the International Astronautical Congress, and we had a a meeting for U.S. students and young professionals, and we got to sit with uh, her and also former NASA administrator Charlie Bolden, astronaut, really great guy. (laughs) (laughs) Astronaut and great guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Um, 
And she said, someone asked her, how do we communicate to our congressional representatives about the importance of science funding, science space? And she said, you must tell our story in their language. And it has stuck with me Mm -hmm. since then because it was a very eloquent way of saying something that I have been arguing for some time, is that if we want to be understood and heard by someone else, it is us who have to change. We cannot expect our audience to change for us. We must change for them. You know what that reminds me of? Did you see that Onion video of the like blue collar? We went like crazy viral. This uh, blue collar guy who was like he was like a minor or something. And he was talking about how he read eight hundred pages of feminist theory, and that helped him <laughs> yes. understand like why Trump was dangerous. And I just thought that was so perfect because it's such a like what you're describing. That was a, a such a great uh, illustration of exactly what you're describing. Yeah, it was perfect. Because mm-hmm. if, yeah. if people have not known, they have to do it. You can Google this. You have to. It's a minor who <laughs> explains after reading the 800 pages of feminist critique, he understood about Trump. And mm-hmm. the weird thing is that what he is saying from these books is complete gobbledygook. And yet embedded in it, there are some things which are demonstrably true, which you couldn't possibly understand if you didn't already have some appreciation of that other language. So it ends up you talk right past an audience. And the only fear I have on that one is it sounds like, well, if minors were smarter, they would understand feminist theory. And I think, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying, no, 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 it's not an up-down, smart, dumb thing. There is a wisdom on whatever side. And if you want to be heard by that side, you better learn the language and wisdom of that side. That echo chambers don't crack from the outside, they crack from the inside. Mm-hmm. No, I absolutely agree. If you want to be impactful, and this is, you know, the Republican Party has been incredibly successful at this. They have learned to speak the language of their constituents, even though many of their party elite do not represent their constituents. Mm -hmm. And it's very important. If you want to be heard by someone, you don't get heard by shouting. So let me ask you a question, because you do this. And I think here's where we start to get to the more practical takeaways. What do you need? What do you think we need to find the courage and strength to crack from the inside without losing our integrity? Because I'm not an apologist for that. This is where I don't think when you crack from the inside, you lose who you are. Mm -hmm. I actually think that's where you find some of your best self, but that's me and I might be nuts. But where do you find the strength and the courage to crack from the inside and still be you and still have your integrity? I think you have to have a deep humility about who you are and also a deep love and compassion for your fellow human. Because... Where do you go to get that? I don't mean to cut you off, but so many will say, where do you, cat? Because you're living on the growing edge of this tension. Where do you go to find that? I grew up uh, in an evangelical Christian household, Southern Baptist. So one, I understand this very, very deeply. But for me, as a lover of space, there's a very classic Carl Sagan quote that we're all star stuff. And in order to find my compassion for people, especially people with whom I have deep uncrossable views and divides with, I look at them and I see that there was a moment in time in which this person and I existed together at the beginning of the universe in a hot star. 
and I have to pay homage to that, that cosmic brotherhood, sisterhood, personhood that we have together. And that's where, for me, it comes in. And, and that makes me humble because I am small in the grand scheme of things. And that makes me connected because we have shared matter with that person. So that's where it comes from for me. I mean, the amazing thing to me is you did it off of Carl Sagan. And I feel like you couldn't have described better one of the fundamental, no pun intended, truths that speak to me about the story of the creation of Adam and Eve. Whether there was an Adam or was an Eve, and I definitely don't think if there was, it was 5,000 years ago. I don't think that's the way the world works. <laughs> Though I do believe the story is from God. I want to be clear. Is that means that every single one of us has the same parent. Mm. Right? And that's, by the way, not me. That's, that's rabbinic sages who lived in the time of Jesus. And one of their takeaways is that the reason the story is told the way it is is that no human being can look at another and say, your father or mother is greater than mine. Mm. Because we all have the same father and mother. And I don't know if I, I don't believe that to be biologically true. But again, that's an accuracy question. I think there's a <laughs> truth to it that we can get a lot of strength from. But since you mentioned space, I'm not letting you go without a little bit of space and a little bit of poetry. <laughs> right? You are happily working in this very complicated, and it's not going away anytime soon, of public policy and political science with evangelical Christians. It's part of your life story. And then space happened. So why space? So I've always loved space because I grew up, it actually comes from almost a moment of tragedy. It does come from a moment of tragedy. Uh, my first birthday was when the Challenger uh, mission exploded 72 seconds after loss on January 28th, 1986. And every year on my birthday on the news was a remembrance. And so I was always interested. I wanted to know about space, wanted to know what was going on. And in, during my undergraduate, I sort of got back involved with the community through NASA tweet-ups and met a great community of people who just are space enthusiasts who are across the political spectrum, in fact, which is really a great thing about space is that it takes, it brings in everyone. And so when I first went back to school, because I didn't go back to my undergrad until I was 23, I had intended to study one thing, and I actually have two degrees. One is in anthropology, and I did all biological anthropology, uh, studying like how did humans become bipedal. I even worked with a lab in the lab with one of my professors um, one semester, doing actual research on lumbar lordosis, which is <laughs> which is the curvature of the lower spine, which is something that helps us have very efficient walking. And also, then through an interesting lecture that I heard about Turkey's role during the Holocaust in um, offering citizenship to former citizens of the Ottoman Empire, added a second uh, major in Near Eastern Studies, which is a very interesting sort of mix of, of non-related but surprisingly related things. But one thing I got a lot of pushback from from my church was like, why are you studying evolution? That's not real. And I was just like, what do you mean that's not real? Like, I don't even understand. And that got me interested when I was applying to grad school actually into science communication. So my master's focused a lot on science communication and this, the studying of what's the relationship between religion and science? How do we even curate or talk about science in, in the United States? 
And then when I was applying to PhD programs, I got into three different programs in three different fields, none of which I had a previous degree in. <laughs> uh, so it was communication and American studies and political science. And my advisor at the University of Alabama, Dr. Derek Frazier, uh, convinced me that political science was the way to go because it could most uh, easily address these science communication questions. And about six months into, into my degree, he was like, you know, every example that you use is space. He's like, why aren't you just studying space policy? And I'm like, that's a great question. Why am I not just <laughs> studying space policy? Because the communication around space touches all areas of science communication. And so that brought me into looking at, at space policy and where I am now, which is sort of deciding what's the exact facet on which I will focus my dissertation because I have several projects that are in different areas of space policy that I'm working on right now. But um, I've loved space ever since I can remember. And now I am incredibly lucky and blessed that I get to study it and get paid to do it. <laughs> I love the part of your answer in addition to the poetry of Sagan and your own personal narrative is a kind of spirit of discovery. Mm -hmm. And I think for most of us, especially us non-scientists, you know, political science is cool and I actually do more of that kind of stuff. But I don't know why I think of it as discovery. But I hear <laughs> space and I'm like, that's the stuff of discovery. <laughs> and I want, as we move to the close here, to ask you, if I can, to read one of your poems that for me is very much connected to a spirit of discovery, in this case, self-discovery and renewal. And the poem is called Her, and why should I read it when the author <laughs> is with us? Well, I'm happy to read this, uh, which is a treat. I very rarely read my poetry to anyone. <laughs> for us, too. Her. Having lived this day, I am not the same she that this morning awoke, different than how I was the moment my eyes closed. So, thank you for that. I want to ask you one question, having just read that very brief, very poignant poem about change, dare I say it, evolution. <laughs> but based on this conversation, I think I know the answer. With all that change going on, that awakening and going back to sleep and reawakening, do you ever experience a loss of integrity in the midst of all that change? I'm always me. I want to thank you, Kat Robison, for helping us crack the echo chamber and especially today for that spirit of discovery and change and always being ourselves. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I'm Brad Hirschfield, and this has been Cracking the Echo Chamber. I've been around the world, seen a lot of things as the earth has twirled, been amazed and excited, collecting the clues when I was running, trying to fill my own shoes, and now I'm just like